good to see you guys. Um, if, if you're uh, new to us, we've been uh, working our way through the book of Acts in a sermon series entitled, You Will Be My Witnesses. And uh, it's kind of a slow study process. We've been kind of just working our way through the text, kind of methodically, slowly, and uh, just seeing what God has for us. Uh, one of the big purposes of our study has been to examine the book of Acts, and you know, it's really been to sort of see what the first century church looked like, which I believe was probably the church in its purest form. Uh, the church is wonderful and beautiful, and Christ died for the church, but it's really never been the same uh, since the first century. And so as a new church, it makes total sense to kind of study church history, right? I mean, you could, there's, there's thousands of books on church history, but we've got one, right? in the Holy Word of God that we can look at. And so we've been looking at it, and we've been getting our identity and, and figuring out what the gospel is and applying that to our lives, and we've been getting our marching orders through the study. And so ultimately, as, as a new church, we want to be a church that magnifies Christ, that's gospel-centered, that expounds on Scripture, that makes an impact in our community and culture, that's led by the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and so what better way to do that than to study the book of Acts, right? So that's what we've been doing, if you're new to us. Uh, last week we looked at, we actually crossed over into chapter 3, uh, and we looked at verses 1 to 10, and, and through that text we saw how Peter and John basically healed a lame beggar who literally was dropped off at this place called the Beautiful Gate over and over and over, like every day he was dropped off at this place, sat on his mat, and he begged for alms. He asked for money, whatever it was. He was looking for support. And so this guy was there all the time, and he was there, and, and Peter and John crossed paths with him, and, and he asked Peter and John if they had something to give him. They're like, uh, no, our clothes aren't any better than yours. We don't have riches or treasure to give to you, but we have something far better than that. And Peter healed the guy in the name of Jesus. And so the guy springs up, you know, like a deer, and he's just hopping around and thrilled and blown away, and it was this incredible thing, and it attracted a lot of attention. Uh, there were people going through this, and this was kind of a, a main pathway into the temple area, into the area during this massive prayer time where they made their offerings and stuff. It was that particular time in the evening, and so there was just tons and tons of people going through the area. They saw this guy. They recognized him. They were blown away. They couldn't believe it. They were flabbergasted. And so that's kind of where we're at now. Peter is about to do something really cool. He's about to capitalize on the moment. And so that's what we focused on last week. And we're tackling a massive section this morning. So um, okay, uh, that that's my sarcastic, weird look. That we're just going to be in a text for a while, guys. And and, and you know, some of you guys. Uh, come from churches where maybe the sermon's 30 minutes, maybe it's 35 minutes, maybe it's an hour, uh, but, you know, our, our, my sermons are usually about an hour long, so bear with us, okay? And I hope that you've got, like, a note sheet. I don't know if you've got a bulletin or whatever, but there's note, and there's usually not enough space in there to write everything down, but just get your stuff ready. Let's gear, get geared up together to work through this text, but we're going to be looking at a big section. Because this is like really from the beginning of chapter 3 all the way into 4. It's really just one story of one thing that takes place. And so we're going to tackle 
3.11 to 4.4 this morning. And that's unheard of for me. For those of you that know me, I usually work a couple of verses at a time, but it just made no sense to do that with this text because it just, it's like plug it, it'd be like just telling little parts of one big story and it'd be confusing. So we're going to look at 3.11 to 4.4, and this particular section really contains Peter's explanation for the miracle. He's going to explain what's behind the miracle in the form of a sermon in the form of a great sermon, and this would have been his second sermon that he's preached since the ascension of the Lord. The first one he did was on the day of Pentecost. Amazing sermon. Lots of people got saved. It was the gospel. People got saved and baptized, and so now he's about to fire up his second sermon. Let's uh, read that text together, and then I'll pray, and then we'll begin to examine it together. We'll get to work. 311. While he clung to Peter and John, love that, clung to them. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. He said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. He says in 19, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. 
But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Father, as we begin to take apart, to divide this incredible passage of Scripture, God, I pray against all distractions. Uh, we have come in here today, and even myself, with the distraction of itchiness. And some have come with the distractions of this life and of work and of family and of all these things. And it's not that those things aren't important, Lord. But God, we pray against those things now that we would have the very mind of Christ now. Open our hearts and minds to you, Father. Open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today. Guide this moment, Father. Guard my lips. May I only speak your words, and be blessed and glorified through this teaching, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your holy name, in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, friends, let's begin with verse 11. Focus in on it. What I'll do is, since it's such a large section, I'll make shorter comments and commentary on each verse, but let's go ahead and get into it here. Verse 11 says, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico, portico called Solomon's. The uh, first thing that I thought of was the clinging of the artist formerly known as the lame beggar. What do we call him now? The not any more lame, beggar, cool guy who dances like Fred Astaire? I mean, I don't know what we call this guy, but, you know, it's like the healed guy, maybe. Um, I'm not sure what to call him, but it's really interesting that the first thing that we see is that he's, yes, he's healed. He's been relieved of that paralyzation or that lameness, but he's clinging to Peter and John. It's like he's embracing them. He's holding on to them. Maybe he's hanging on to their legs and they're dragging him. I don't know, but it's an interesting visual, and it, it reminds me a little bit of the time that um, Jesus and the disciples went into this area called Gadara, and they, they took a, a boat ride across the Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and they went to Gadara, and as soon as they got to the beach, this psychotic, chain-breaking, freaky, psycho, maniac guy filled with a legion of demons came down right on the beach and confronted them, and, and Jesus healed this guy and cast out this legion of demons, and you're familiar with the story, and all these demons leave, and they go into this herd of pigs, and it goes off into the sea, and all the people get ticked off because all their pork product was gone, um, but what's interesting is that the guy who had the legion of demons clung to Jesus. He clung to him. Why did he cling to him? I don't know. It got to the point where he had clung to Jesus, where Jesus was getting back in the boat to leave, and the guy wanted to go with him. And Jesus said, no, no, you need to stay here. You've, you've been called by God to be a minister of the gospel. Now you need to go back to your town, and you need to share what's happened, and tell your townsfolks what happened and all that. And he, and he obeys, and he goes off and does it. And it's really neat, because when Jesus comes back around later in his ministry to the Decapolis, which is what this area was, this guy had gone out and spread the gospel. When Jesus came, he was so widely welcomed, all because of the ministry of this guy. But it's an interesting connection there 
that we've got the artist formerly known as the lame beggar, he's clinging to Peter. And, and I think it's a sincere thing. It's like he's been healed, he's been given a gift that's probably almost not comprehensible to him. And so he clings to the guy who healed him. It's really an interesting thing. Interesting thing. And it's, it's very similar to what happened in Gadara. Now, after they, he healed this guy, it says in the text that there was a, an enormous amount of people that sort of gathered around and they probably sort of coagulated or clogged the gate to go up into this area. I don't know how big this thing was. I looked and there's 15 gates or whatever that go into it, so it's confusing and nobody knows exactly where this one was or anything, but it probably got coagulated up with people and all that. And so there's a lot of people, they're gathered around this guy, they recognize him, they've seen him there. Oh, look, it's the lame beggar Jimmy. He's there and now he's not lame anymore. So it's coagulated, it's a mess. And what happens is, is that Peter now and John and the lame beggar go up into this area called the portico of Solomon or Solomon's portico. And, and, and Peter brings them up into there, and when they get up into this area, there are more people that are up in this colonnade, cool, columned-out area. It's got like a, a roof on it. It's this long, uh, rectangular-shaped space surrounded by all these uh, columns, and it's got this roof, and there's people up in there. It's one section of the, the Temple Mount, and all these other people come over and kind of storm them. And so now... Peter, John, and the not lame beggar guy are completely surrounded by an absolute multitude of of people. Now, this Solomon's portico is an interesting interesting place, not just for its construction or architecture, because it was a a beautiful, long, rectangular space with all these hand-hewn, carved-out columns and this roof, and it was very decorative and beautiful. I mean, it was fascinating for that, but it was significant because it was the sort of the main place in the temple area where the rabbis would bring their disciples for discipleship. Uh, you would see the rabbis in this area and they would have these uh, little pods of disciples because that's how Jewish culture was. You'd have these disciples and they'd kind of follow this rabbi and he'd be their teacher for a very long period of time all through their youth and all that. And so this would be that area where that would happen. Uh, much like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Ip Man, which is like my favorite karate movie in the world. I love it. And there's this one scene where there's all these different instructors on the street that's like called Kung Fu Avenue or something. I don't know what it's called. I'm jacking it up. But there's this road, and there's all these little schools of, of you know, Kung Fu. And there's a, a sensei here, and then there's a pod of students, and then there's a sensei here and a pod. It's almost like a market just for karate. I mean, you can go in there and shop, you know, how can I best destroy my neighbor? Oh, you need to go over to Kung Flea, you know, and whatever. And whoo, he's got the best style, right? So, I don't know, that was dumb. But it, it, it kind of reminds me of that where you've got these rabbis and these pods and these rabbis and a rabbi and a pod, rabbi, pod. And so that's kind of what it would be like. And, uh, and it was the place where uh, someone might teach a larger group of people. Uh, too. So the Solomon's Portico was a place known for teaching, for discipleship, and for instruction, maybe much like a worship center might have been in a way, but I guess there's less interaction there, right? It's just preaching and you listen. So, but a big discipleship room is what this place is. Very interesting. Now, because of that, it is the probable site 
of uh, just a number of events recorded in the Gospels. They believe that this is a place where Jesus taught. In fact, in Acts uh, 10.23, it is named as a specific site in which Jesus taught. So I believe this was the place when Jesus went into the temple to, to, to teach, this is probably the place where he did the majority of his teaching because this was the place where you did the teaching at the temple. You didn't do it in the area where the altar was. They were killing the animals there and all that, and you kind of gathered around that. So this was the teaching area. This was the education wing. And so the Lord had taught there probably a number of times. Now, the portico came to be the regular meeting place for the church. This became the gathering place for the Christian church. This was where they would go to what? To listen to the apostles' teaching. It says in Acts 5.12. So this is a significant place. Peter and John are there now with the artist formerly known as the lame beggar, and there's a multitude of people gathered around them, and Peter's about to do something really, really cool. Now look at 12. I love painting the pictures of the geography and stuff and the architecture because it, it helps us to visualize what's happening there. And we can see it in our mind's eye that they've got this big building with these, you know, these columns in, and now Peter's going to do something here. And it says in 12, And when Peter saw it, saw this massive group, he addressed the people. And he began by saying, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? After looking around, Peter turned the attention of the crowd onto himself, and the text says that he addressed the people. And he would have done it in a fashion similar to what other rabbis would have done there. And so he now began... He, he, and it says in, at the Pentecost sermon that he actually stood up. Stood up meaning he took a position of teaching, kind of a higher position, so to speak, so he could have everyone's attention. And so he stands up here, I would think, and he addresses the people. He begins to address them. And what's interesting is that his opening statement seems to indicate that the people were already familiar with him and John. It sounds that way if you read through it. Now, this is probably due to the exposure that he and the other apostles received at Pentecost. I mean, he stood up in front of thousands of people and preached a sermon, and thousands of people gave their hearts to Christ and were baptized. And, and so Peter addresses them. He says to them, like, why, why are you surprised by what's happening here? Like, you know who we are. You've seen how we operate. You've seen how we function. And the chances are there were some there that were familiar with he and John from the ministry of Jesus. I mean, they toured with him for years, traveled all throughout Palestine. And so he addresses them in a way that seems uh, to be that they were familiar with him. And maybe that was because of the exposure. Now, Paraphrased, it would sound a little like, why are you so surprised at this man's healing? Why do you stare at us and wonder? You know that we do not do these things through our own power. And he says piety, we would say religiousness. We don't do what we do because of our power. 
We don't do what we do because of our religiousness, so to speak. By no means do we do that. Look at 13. He continues by saying, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then he says, The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. This is a shocking statement. This statement is meant to grab a hold of their attention. He's placing some guilt upon his listeners here in his statement. Now, since his message was directed mainly to Israelites, because that's precisely who he's speaking to, Israelites. That, this, is, this is an Israelite gathering. These are Jews that are here at the temple for the evening sacrifice and for that. And there was a special area for Gentiles, and it wasn't in this particular area. So since his message was directed mainly to the Israelites, Peter chooses a familiar Jewish description of God. The, descript, the, the depiction of God as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and the God of our fathers. This particular depiction stresses again God's covenant faithfulness to Israel. Israel was God's covenant nation. He chose them, the least of all nations, to be a nation unto himself, to be for his glory, to be a crown for the world to see for the glory of God. And so this statement has to do with God's covenant faithfulness to Israel. And so this would have grabbed their attention. This description of God seems to have been employed uh, on some very significant occasions throughout the Old Testament. When Moses received his calling at the burning bush, Exodus 3.6. When Elijah called down divine fire on the prophets of Baal, 1 Kings 18.36. When King David prayed that the Israelites would never allow the future temple to become the house of men, 1 Chronicles 29.18, and so on. There's more, because of time we don't have time to list them all. So this was a very beautiful, very covenantal title for God. And he's reminding them of the covenant-making God, the God who has made a covenant with them. And their minds would have been spinning, and they would have thought of these other times that God was referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their fathers. Now, by using that particular depiction Peter claims continuity with the Old Testament prophets since he is declaring the same God they preached and the same Messiah they promised. Peter proclaims that the God of the covenant, the God of the patriarchs, and the, and the God of the prophets has glorified his servant, Jesus. Servant is an unusual title for Jesus. It appears only five times in the scriptures. Uh, and we think of Jesus saying, I have not come to be uh, glorified, so to speak, or whatever you want to call it, but I have come to serve is why he came. And so, but this is, a, this is an unusual title. 
Uh, we would see Jesus being called the Son of Man many times and many other titles. But to call him servant is a bit unusual, and it really only appears five times in the Scriptures. Now, servant is translated pais in Greek, and it basically means, and this is really cool, it means personal servant. It means personal representative. So verse 13 would sound something like this if we paraphrased it. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his own personal servant and representative, Jesus. And that is precisely the form that Jesus took on. That form would be, what did he take on? He came as the Father's own personal servant and representative to carry out the Father's plan of salvation through his ministry, through the cross, through the tomb, through his resurrection. He carried it out by how? Fulfilling the law. He came as the personal servant of the living God, of the Father God, and he came, and how did he serve the Father, and how did he serve man? By fulfilling the law. He did with the law what we could never do. We're all lawbreakers. None of us can even follow the Ten Commandments perfectly. Just the Decalogue. Forget about all the Levitical law and all the other laws. We can't even handle the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments stand before us as a mirror and says, you fell short and you need Christ. You didn't make the cut. Well, I've never committed adultery. Have you lusted in your heart? You've committed adultery. You see, that's what he did. He came and he perfectly fulfilled the law. Perfect obedience to the law did what was impossible for us. That's part of his ministry and part of him being the servant of the Father and the servant of man. What else did he do? As the servant, the personal servant, he paid the due penalty for our sin with his blood. He did what no four-legged lamb could ever do, and that's remove our sin once and for all. His precious blood poured forth from those wounds and from that thorn-scarred head and from that wound in his side and that precious blood poured out and it washed away our sin. We, we couldn't bleed enough. We couldn't sacrifice enough animals. We can't cut ourselves. We cannot pull it off. Only the precious blood of the perfect righteous one could do it. It's what he did. What else did he do? He absorbed the wrath of God. He absorbed the wrath of God on his own body on the cross. You see, the sins of man have stoked the flames of God's wrath since the very beginning. And through the power of the cross and through the, the power of the Holy Spirit and through the sacrificial lamb of God, he absorbed the wrath of God. And that's such a freeing thing to know that if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. No wrath. No wrath. What else did he do? Through his ministry, through the cross, he 
satisfied the justice of God. See, our God is a God of justice. Our God is a just God. He's the incorruptible judge. He can't be persuaded by anything. He's fixed. He's immutable. He's unchanging. And he's just. And sin must be paid for. Bottom line with him. No cutting corners. And being that he's just and that we are unjust, Christ, Christ has become our justice. He satisfied the justice of God. What else did he do as the personal servant of the Father and of his church, of his people? He exchanged his perfect righteousness for our unrighteousness. Being that we're lawbreakers, being that we're sinners, we're unrighteous. From the womb, we're born into this world as totally depraved sinners in desperate need of God's grace. We are unrighteous before God. All the way back to Adam and Eve when they chose to eat that fruit to dismiss perfect loving God. We are unrighteous and Christ imputes his righteousness to us. He takes all of our filth upon his body and he trades it for his perfect righteousness so that we could stand justified before a holy, perfect God. Christ in us. That is what the Father sees. That is the glorious exchange, my friends, that you're clothed in a righteousness not of your own, but of Christ, and that he freely gives it to those of faith, those who believe in him, those who repent of their sins. What else did he do? He completed his work, and he conquered death, his burial and resurrection. Might be the greatest news of all. Without the resurrection of Christ, we have nothing But he was actually beaten and sacrificed on a cross and then buried. And then three days later, his ministry was completed in that time. It was almost as if while he was in that tomb for three days that the father assessed his work or something. Something incredible happened. We see in the text too, in the scriptures, that maybe he went off into Hades and freed people. I I don't know. I haven't studied that. But something divine happened while he was in that tomb. Maybe his work was assessed. I don't know. But his work was completed when he rose. You see, that is what the servant Jesus did those things. Those are the things that he did. And that is why the Father glorified him. You see? That's why he glorified him. And Peter goes on to point out what his listeners did with the servant Jesus. He said, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. (laughs) Even though the religious leaders pleaded their case and called many witnesses against Jesus, Pilate wasn't convinced of the Lord's guilt. He wasn't convinced of the guilt. In fact, he had said at one point, I find no fault in this man. He even had Jesus 
publicly flogged in an attempt to appeal to the crowd's sympathy. He figured that if he if the crowd had seen Jesus bloodied and beaten to a pulp, maybe they would relent, but they didn't. They didn't relent. What did they do? Verse 14. But you, you didn't relent, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Pilate says, I, I can't find anything wrong with this guy. He's a, seems like a, I don't know. Doesn't seem like he's guilty and you're wanting him to die. Man, you people are fanatical. Let's swing over to Matthew 27, 15 to 23 and look at how it played out. Take your Bibles and turn over there. Matthew 27, 15 to 23. Twenty-seven, fifteen, twenty-three, And so the account goes, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called Christ. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. That's Jesus. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. And it says in 20 of 27, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, What? Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. You see, that became their mantra that day. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Over and over as the religious leaders went and stirred them up and stirred this crowd up. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer be granted to you. Peter continues his massive assault on their consciences in verse 15. And that's exactly what the gospel is to those that are outside of Christ. It is an assassination attempt on their conscience. That's what the gospel does. It aims to bring out the reality of who we are. Peter continues in 15, he says, And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. MacArthur's commentary on that little section is it's really stellar. It's really good. Listen to what he wrote. Peter has been presenting a series of paradoxes. Although Jesus was a servant, 
God exalted him. You see the paradox? Servant, exaltation. They're like opposites. He was their deliverer, yet the nation delivered him to Pilate. They rejected the holy and righteous one in favor of an unholy, unjust murderer. Now he comes to the greatest paradox of all. They put to death the author of life while asking for the release of one who took life. Series of paradoxes that that Peter has been making to shock their consciences, to bring them around. Now, author of life is a really cool title in the original language. It is archegos in Greek, and it means to be the originator or initiator of something. In our text, it has a dual meaning. It defines Jesus as the author of all physical life in creation, as well as the author of all spiritual life through salvation in the gospel. These two truths about the Lord's authorship are found in scriptures like Colossians 1, 15 to 17, and in Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Peter tells them, even though you killed the author of life, because you did, that's what you did by asking for Barabbas and by condemning Jesus, even though you um, killed the author of life, God raised him from the dead. This is what he says. God raised him from the dead. This is another reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which was, as I've said several times, the main, main driving theme and point to apostolic preaching. They preached the resurrection. That's how important the resurrection is to our faith. Without it, we're sunk. That was the major theme. Yeah, Jesus on the cross, all these things. But man, you guys thought you were going to stop him, but you didn't because he rose in three days. This is what the apostles taught over and over and over. And we see it right here in our text. God raised him from the dead. And then he says, we were witnesses of the resurrection. We, we, we saw him after he rose. He came and showed himself to us. He came and ate on a beach with us. He showed himself to 500 other souls. We were witnesses. We interacted with him, is what he says. We're witnesses. We saw it. We saw it with our own eyes. Look at 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, after defining who Jesus is as the resurrected, you know, personal servant of God and author of life and salvation, Peter then provides them with living proof that his words are true by pointing to the artist formerly known as the lame beggar. You're seeing it for yourself. You're seeing what faith in the resurrected Son of God, the author of life that you guys killed who rose, you're seeing the fruit of it right here. This guy is a standing, living, breathing, dancing, gazelle flopping, what do you call that? Jumping around. The guy was doing that. He was just, he was, you're seeing it. That's, he's the fruit of it, is what he's saying. 
You want to know what's going on? You're astonished by this guy? Let me tell you again about Jesus. Let me tell you what you did. And let me tell you what he did and what he's continuing to do. Look at this guy right here. The guy's probably standing there going, you know, popping the collar. What's up? Legs. They work. You like that? You know, and there's probably some going, oh, it just can't be. I mean, he's just showing them. Here, here's an example. You're listening to what I'm saying. Here's what I've told you. And, and this is, is so beautiful because this goes to show how the proclamation of the gospel verbally should be backed with good deeds and works. We tell and we show. We talked about that last week. We preach it verbally, and there's some out there that think that I can just show the gospel by living differently. No, what you show is someone who's nice and kind and maybe generous. The gospel is a verbal message. It must be said. You're not going to walk around and be a really nice guy and all that, and they're going to go, I guarantee it's because of the resurrection of Jesus. That's why he's doing that. No concept of that. It's got to be because of Jesus. Look at that. He didn't cuss. No, it's a verbal thing. And right here we see verbalization proof. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. This is who Jesus is, basically, paraphrasing 16. This is who Jesus is. I've told you who he is. This is who he is. Now, here's proof. All of you look at this guy, for he has been given perfect health through faith in Jesus' name. That's what he says. Look at him. Here's proof. Now, we look at 17. Oh, this is good. This is where the heat gets turned up a little higher. You see the proof? And he says, and now, brothers, Adelphos, brothers, brothers, fellow Jews, fellow Israelites, blood, you're my blood. He says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Peter tells them that their actions were guided by ignorance. Jesus pointed this out while dying on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them for they what? Know not what they do. But Peter is in no way releasing his listeners of their responsibility, actions, and sin. These people were just as guilty as all people are. No one will be exonerated on behalf of ignorance. Men are without excuse. Since the days of Adam and Eve, God has sounded the alarm against our sin and rejection of Him. The sacrificial system, the law, and the prophets all cry aloud, repent and turn to God. Even creation itself beckons our attention, Romans 1.20. So Peter isn't letting them off the hook by calling them ignorant. Instead, and this is so important, instead he is inviting them to understand what they've done so that they might not perish. Peter said, you acted in ignorance, but you're still responsible. And then he tells them that God used their ignorance to fulfill his own plans. Look at verse 18. This is where he tells them. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. 
Peter reassures his hearers that their rejection and execution of the Messiah had not thwarted God's plan. The crucifixion, so unthinkable to them as happening to the true Messiah, did not alter God's program, nor did it disqualify Jesus as their Messiah. Why? Because God had foretold by the mouths of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. And those prophecies had what now been, it says at the end of 18, fulfilled. The Old Testament foresaw Christ's death in such passages as Isaiah 53, which we read part of today, Psalm 22, Zechariah 12.10. Even the nation of Israel, even their rejection of him had been predicted in Isaiah 53.3. God used their evil intentions. He used their ignorance and their evil intentions to fulfill his own purposes. Acts 2.23, Genesis 50.20. Now, as I said before, Ignorance does not exonerate people of their sins before God. No plea of ignorance will be accepted before the throne of God, for God has left man without any excuse. Even the guy on the desert island, well, how might he hear the gospel? Let me ask you a question. Has that man fashioned a little idol, a little tiki doll? Because that's usually what people do when they're left to themselves. They look at everything around them, and they say something had to begin this, so I'll build something out of wood and worship it. You see how it works? I have that thrown at me all the time. What about the guy that can't hear the gospel? Nature itself testifies. Creation itself testifies to the existence of a holy, perfect, awesome, amazing, creative, awesome God. Look at all this. Look at the stars. If someone looks upon creation and says, God, reveal yourself to me, do you think God goes, nope? Can't do it. Sorry, go make yourself an idol and worship that peg. No, God, God's ear is ever open to the cries of those who want to know him. <clears throat> now, being that ignorance will not exonerate people of their sin before God, no plead will stand Man is left without excuse. Peter calls his hearers on the carpet. Look at 19 to 21. He says, repent. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter called for them to repent, to turn from their ignorance, so that their sins may be blotted out. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Peter's first sermon, that repent is metanoeo in Greek. It is absolutely, repentance is absolutely foundational to true saving faith. Repentance means to change your mind, and a mind change means and shows up in a change of direction of life. It means to turn from the world and its beliefs to God and to the truth of Scripture. And this is precisely what Peter is asking his audience to do. Turn from your ignorance. Turn from your savagery that you showed against Christ. Repent of those things and believe in Jesus. 
He says, so that what your sins may be blotted out. Your translation might say wiped away or something like that. This is probably a reference to Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, David lamented over his adulterous sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. What a dreadful thing he did. And after Nathan approached him and revealed his sin to him, he shattered, he exploded, he became spiritually impoverished. As Jesus said, we must in the first beatitude of chapter 5 of Matthew. What did he do? He laments, and in verse 9 of 51, Psalm 51, he cries out to God, Hide your face from my sins, and what? Blot out my iniquities. Verse 20, Peter told them that if they repented, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Sin does not bring a sense of freshness no matter how much fun it is. It always makes us feel dirty and contaminated at some point. And then people engage in more sin to try to cover up that sense of dirtiness. They figure if I just keep engaging in it, maybe it'll hide the way that I truly feel. If a person finds some relief in additional sin and adding sin to sin, it's always temporary because when the exhilaration or the buzz wears off, the sense of dirtiness always returns. I know. I've been a Christian for only 10 years. So I've had a lot of years to screw up my life. And I can remember the nights of drinking and debauchery and how dreadful I felt, and not just because of hangovers but the sense of overwhelming guilt and condemnation in my spirit. Sin only perpetuates more grief, more filth, more dirtiness. And when you engage in more to cover it up, when those things wear off, even though they might be exhilarating or make you feel good, Because sin is fun. Man, it totally appeals to our sinful nature and flesh. But when the fun wears off, it leaves you with that same sense of emptiness that caused you to engage in it in the first place. Peter tells his listeners that repentance will usher them into the very presence of Jesus who refreshes the soul, who removes who removes the contaminants and the condemnation and the guilt and the grief and he refreshes us. In order to properly understand the rest of verses 20 to 21, which is, was incredibly confusing to me when I read it, I was like, Peter, you're on a roll. What's this? And I got to that point, I just thought, okay, that's way beyond my pay grade, as if I had one. Yeah, (laughs) you know? But I did some research. Because we are, when we find ourselves challenged by the Word of God, we shouldn't just say, well, it's not important for me to know that. No, we should say, I'd like to understand that I want to know what that means, and we ought to be brains and check it, and keep looking and researching and praying. And and so what I found was in order to properly understand the rest of 20 to 21, which seems a bit confusing, we must first understand the words of Jesus in Matthew 23, 39. 
because this is a reference to what he said. Peter is kind of quoting him in a way, or he's say, he said this series of small statements here based on what the Lord said. Look over there at Matthew 23, 39. This is really, really amazing. 2339, Jesus said, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus said these words during the Passion Week, a couple of days before the crowds rejected him and turned him over to Pilate. He knew, and this is when he lamented over Jerusalem, over Jerusalem as he sat atop Mount of Olives and looked over the city, and he was grieving over the fact that he knew that they were going to reject him, their one and only Messiah. And he grieved. It grieved him greatly. He wept. And he said this during that particular time. He knew what they were going to do, and he said this. And as an act of discipline and judgment against the nation, against those inhabitants of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, he declared that they would not see him again until after they repented and welcomed him as their true Messiah. Romans 11.26, Zechariah 12.10, and then 15 and 9. Peter tells his listeners to repent and to embrace Jesus as their true Messiah so that the Father would send his Son back for the second time to establish his earthly throne and millennial reign. That's what he's saying in this passage. It's really incredible to me that the return of the Lord is contingent upon Israel's right response to him. I don't know if you knew that or not. Maybe some of you did, but I, I had never really studied that before. We've all been yelling and screaming for Jesus to come back and praying and seeking him fervently, but Jesus himself said, I'm not coming back until you receive me the right way. And so, and Peter quotes that here and says, man, if you guys repent, if you repent and do that, the Father will send the Christ. And then your troubles are going to end in a way that they didn't understand. Their sins would be removed. But this is incredible. I, I had not known that. I had not realized that his return was contingent on their response. And so what did I do? I did a little bit of research to see if I could figure out if he's coming really quick. Can't hurt to do that, right? Now, I'm not going to hold a conference, you know, and tell you a bunch of stuff that I'm not sure of and proclaim it and then you know, because that's what men do, but I did a little bit of research, and I got a population count on Israel, and there's 6 million Jews since 1949, or whenever it was established as a nation, there's 6 million Jews there now. That's a lot of Jews. A lot of Jews. But only 2% of them are Messianic. Only 120,000 love Christ. 2%. And so my mind went, it's going to be a while before you return. They're not responding to you correctly. And then I remembered end times prophecy. And I remember the tribulation period and how we have seven trumpet blasts and then how we have seven, seven bowls of judgment that are poured out during that seven years. We have these things. We, we see them, and it's amazing. And then it says at the end of the period, the remnant will be saved. And that's probably where the largest contingency of Jews are saved is during those final years of the tribulation period. And... If you ask me, it sure seems that the tribulation period's a lot closer than we would think, right? I mean, look at the world around you. What did Christ say? Look at the trees. Look at the season that we're in. Things will be happening. 
and we can assess that maybe that's closer than we thought. And if it's true that the majority of the Jews or that the higher contingency gets saved at the end of that period, then maybe it's not so far off. It's really fascinating. Let's look at 22 to 24. The main point was that when the nation aligns itself and receives him and welcomes him, he comes back after that. It's a little nugget that Peter adds on to it. And boy, were they ever screaming for him to come. They just didn't believe that he had already came. They needed to figure that out. 22 to 24, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Here Peter quotes Deuteronomy 18.15-22. In this text, God promised to send a prophet or a delivering sort of type of prophet like Moses. That's what Moses was regarded as, a deliverer. He brought them out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 18.15-22 says that a prophet like Moses and yet greater than Moses would come to the nation of Israel. Instead of delivering the people out of Egypt like Moses did or delivering them from Roman oppression, delivering them from the clutches of their Pharisees and that false religion, instead of delivering from them from those things, he would come and deliver them from their greatest enemy. And that's their sin. That's their sin. And that's who Moses spoke about. Peter takes the prophetic words of Moses and he applies them directly to Jesus here in this text. You're wondering who Moses was talking about back in Deuteronomy. He's talking about the guy who came, who healed this guy who's standing next to me. That's the one who came in your likeness and he's your deliverer. That's what he's doing. He's building a bridge between the Old Testament and Christ, which is important. And in verse 24, he takes it even further by claiming that every prophet since Samuel testified to the truth of the Messiah, to the truth of what would happen during those days. This is really interesting because Samuel never directly prophesied about Jesus, and although he was a fascinating, incredible prophet, he didn't directly prophesy about Jesus, but the one he anointed as king over Israel, King David did. And Jesus came through David's royal lineage. This is what Peter must have been referring to here. And then what about all the other prophets that came from Samuel on? I tried to count them up the other day, and I came up with about 39 of them. 39 Old Testament. I could be wrong, but it's somewhere in that area. 39 Old Testament prophets from Samuel and up proclaimed Christ in some way, shape, or form, pointing him to the days that they were residing in at that moment with this healing and Pentecost and those things. These things would happen when Jesus was resurrected and come unto you. It's amazing. He's just weaving the Old Testament into his teaching so that Jesus will be seen clearly from the Old Testament, which they clearly could not do. They couldn't get their minds around it. 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of earth be blessed. Okay, he went to Moses, now he takes it back farther. Peter reminds his listeners of their connectedness to the prophets and of the promise that God made on their behalf to their forefathers like 
Abraham, who was told by God that all the families of earth would be blessed through him. This promise was made, this promise made there was and still is being fulfilled. This promise that the that world would ultimately, the families of this world would be blessed through Abraham, it, that promise was made and is still being fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus came through Abraham's lineage and the world has been richly blessed by him. Because of Jesus, we have salvation, the church, faith, hope. We even have practical things like hospitals and organized education and countless other blessings. Those things were established by his church. No one has affected and blessed the world like Jesus. No one has. And he continues to affect and bless it each and every day, whether you believe in him or not. That's a reality. He uses his church to bless their communities, to bless others. The promise was made and fulfilled in Jesus. Through Jesus is what Peter is saying, that all the nations of the world would be blessed. And again, the guy standing next to me who used to be lame, he's the fruit of it. He's been blessed by the one that Abraham would come through Abraham's lineage by the one that Moses talked about. That's what he's doing. He's telling them over and over from many different angles he's hitting them. 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is a great statement. The Jews, and we're, we're getting closer to the end, so bear with me. The Jews were the first people to have the gospel preached to them by Jesus and by the apostles. This was by God's own design and according to his own covenant with his people. The apostle Paul stated this truth in Romans 1.16. Jesus actually commanded that the apostles begin their gospel preaching in where? Jerusalem. <laughs> what Peter's doing here. And then go out from Jerusalem. Luke 24.47. amazing he's saying man god having raised up his servant sent him to you first you've had first dibs on the gospel you're god's covenant people according to what's been said through moses according to what's been said through abraham he's come to you first you rejected him but he's now returning through his servants through me he's speaking to you is what peter is saying he's come back to you why to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. When you boil down Peter's incredible sermon and you cap it off with verse 26, you end up with an amazing offer of hope. That's what you end up with. Paraphrased, it would sound something like this. The covenant honoring God has not given up on you. Even though you rejected and killed the author of life, God raised him up and has sent him to you this day so that you might repent of your wickedness and turn to him in faith. What grace. That's the gospel, friends. These were the very people that murdered him. And here Jesus has returned through the lips of Peter and John to extend the arms of God's grace and love to them, to his covenant people. It's absolutely incredible. Jesus is a relentless preacher.
pursuer. He will find that which was lost and bring it unto himself. We see that invitation here in this text. What a beautiful, beautiful scripture. And now we get close to closing it out. And we flip over to four. Because we've heard all these things and, and expounded upon this great sermon, we've got to see what happened in the end, don't we? That would have been just weird for me to say, come back next week, than to read four verses. And you guys would have been like, that's how it ends? Ew. <laughs> no, God never, he doesn't leave people in a state of condemnation because the gospel does condemn but through resurrection power, it saves. And it gives you a new life. That's what's so great about the gospel. That's so, what's so great about the finished work of Christ. And let's look at what happened next. And this is where it gets crazy. And as they were speaking to the people, Peter and John, obviously Peter's been preaching, but it looks like John was saying some things too. That's pretty cool. It says, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. What happened here? The religious leaders freaked out. They had done their very best to cover up the resurrection of Jesus with lies and deception. In fact, they had made up stories of how the disciples stole the Lord's body. But the resurrection wasn't the only thing that offended these men. No, no, no. They saw the apostles as a band of unlearned, raggedy Galilean fishermen who had no business teaching folks about the things of God. In their minds, the apostles weren't sanctioned, approved, or authorized to preach anything in Solomon's portico. The religious leaders believed that they were the only worthy teachers. And when they saw and heard Peter and John proclaiming the resurrection and teaching the crowd, they became what? Greatly annoyed, mad, angry, hornet's nest. Bzzz. They got upset. And it says they came upon them. This is a forceful expression in the Greek. They rushed them. Look what they're doing. Get over there. We've got to stop them. And then it says, they also brought with them the captain of the temple guard or the chief of police, we would call him. Now look at three. <laughs> and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. They threw the apostles in jail. And they had to stay overnight because it was late and after hours. The courts were closed. They were like, let's throw them in jail right now. They won't be able to say another thing till Monday or till the next day or whatever. It's like going into jail on Friday night. You ain't getting a rain till Monday morning. They locked them up and they had to stay the night. This was the first case of persecution against the apostles that we see in the New Testament. This is the first massive blast of it and it certainly will not be the last. Now, this is where it gets great. The religious leaders had hoped, 
that arresting the apostles would stop the spread and the effects of the gospel message. But they were wrong. In spite of the mess and the arrest, God was at work applying Peter's sermon to the hearts of many listeners. Look in verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed. Oh, believed. And then they give a, a number. But many of those who heard believed. And the number of men came to about, what, 5,000. 5,000 represents the cumulative number in the Jerusalem church. That means that 2,000 more were added to Christ's church right after that sermon, making the grand total of believers now 5,000 just in a few days. And it's encouraging to know, and it's funny, and it's crazy, and this is how God works. It's encouraging to know that as Peter and John sat in a dank, dirty prison cell, God was transforming hearts and calling men out of ignorance and darkness and sin. They were just sitting in there, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. God's out there doing a work. He's taken that word of God. He's taken that gospel, and he's impressing it upon men's souls. And they're crying out, save us. They repented. Oh, I love it. I know if I was in that prison cell, I'd say, all is lost. What will you make of that sermon, Lord? Uh, I'm just such a wimp. It's amazing. God was transforming hearts, calling men out of their ignorance, out of their darkness, out of their sin, into his wonderful light. Verse 4 is proof that the Lord's words were true when he declared, I shall build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Lock them up, kill them, cut their heads off, turn them into human torches, Nero. You will not stop the gospel from going forth. You will not stop my church from being built. It comes from a greater power than anything in this world, the Holy Spirit. Love it. History has proven that persecution causes church growth. And that is the case today. The church is virtually exploding in high persecution areas, like in parts of Africa, the Sudan, parts of China, and in many other places around the world, those highly persecuted areas. The church is just exploding in those areas where people forcefully stand against the gospel. It's in those places that the gospel is truly expanding and the church is just exploding and growing and God is adding to their numbers. It's amazing. Maybe that is why the church in America is languishing. Maybe that is why the church in America is lethargic, lean, apathetic, and probably most tragically unscriptural. We live in a virtual candy land where the gospel of health, wealth, and tolerance is proclaimed. Therefore, there isn't any persecution here. Our message is soft. Our version of Christianity would have been welcomed and widely accepted in Ephesus during, a Paul's day, during the Apostle Paul's day. Ephesus was a bit of a religious melting pot where many, many belief systems coexisted very harmoniously, kind of like the U.S. 
But Paul's version of Christianity inflamed people to wrath, causing riots and mobs because it exposed their pride, greed, lust, debauchery, adulteries, idolatry, and it challenged them to repent and to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Paul's version of Christianity was like an x-ray that exposed the cancer of sin and then it prescribed the proper treatment, which was faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the majority of Ephesians took offense to that diagnosis and treatment and some even turned to violence. But the gospel continued and a church was planted there and God saved souls in that little tiny town of Ephesus. And that little church was surrounded by every conceivable form of debauchery, and yet it still grew and reached people. I'd like to pose a rhetorical question in ending for us. Listen. How might we, as a church, be able to ignite a bit of persecution and church growth in our own community. And for some of you, that just rubs you wrong. Why would we ignite persecution? Why would we do such a thing? Or how might we do that might be the better question. Because this is where you might be thinking, how would we do that in a way that honors God, that honors the gospel? Well, let me give you three things as we end. I believe that we can ignite a bit of persecution and church growth in our community by speaking the truth in love plainly. Did you hear what I said? By speaking the truth in love plainly. That is precisely what Peter has done in that sermon. That is precisely what Paul did in all of his sermons. Everywhere he went, he spoke the truth in love plainly. He said what Scripture says. He spoke what was revealed to him. Nothing more, nothing less. He just shared with those around him the truth in love plainly. Not a whole bunch of extra theology on there. He just gave them the truth of Scripture. That's what he did. We could do it by speaking the truth in love boldly. Our next passage of Scripture that we're about to study, you're about to see boldness come from a man who denied Jesus three times. And yet he stands before the same people that condemned Jesus to death and he boldly proclaims the truth in love. That we would speak it plainly, say what Scripture says in a loving way, and that we would do it boldly, which means that we wouldn't cower, that we wouldn't be afraid. We would let the plain Expression of Scripture, of truth, be presented in its own bold fashion. Because the Scripture is very bold. It just, sin is sin. Light is light. It's simple. I mean, it's not rocket science. Last thing, I believe we could ignite a bit of persecution and church growth in our community by speaking the truth in love consistently. That we would be a people, we would be a church that says it plainly, boldly, but consistently that we keep bringing those around us to God's truth, that we continue to share the truth of God's word with people, 
that were consistent. I didn't say anything about we need to be jerks. I didn't say anything about we need to judge everyone and tell them they're all going to hell. Everything that I've said is in love, and that's exactly how the gospel must be presented, in a loving way. Why? Because we're not judging them and, and trying to condemn them of their sin. We're trying to welcome them into the fellowship of Christ, which is spectacular. We're trying to invite them into our family. Come, be a part of this, friend. Because it's unlike anything they've experienced. I know this. Speak the truth in love plainly. Speak the truth in love boldly. Speak the truth in love consistently. And guess what? You're going to tick people off. And some of them are going to get so ticked that they're going to realize, why am I so ticked? Maybe I need some heart surgery. Maybe it's true. I know it's true. Why am I denying this? I mean, it's just amazing what God does when you speak the truth those ways. He does his work. And, and you could say something and encourage someone and then go away and sit in a jail cell and God saves them on the outside there. I could see it right there on my iPad, <laughs> which has the Bible verse on it. May we be a church that does those things. May we be a church that yearns to see those, to see those outside. Come to Jesus. May we speak the truth in love plainly, in love boldly, and in love consistently.